that is my life's motto. Do not dim your light. You're not here to do that. Let them get sunglasses. You're here to shine and don't apologize for your light. Like even if your idea about what you want is slightly vague, your idea about what you don't want is always more specific. Mm. So if it is that, reject it. Listen to your intuition. If you find out what success means to you, you will thrive and never be stale. So practice being good at life and let your authentic self prevail. You don't fit their understanding and their set of references and beliefs and experiences of what someone who looks like you, walks like you, talks like you should, could or can accomplish. You know you've got champions around you when they can smell, sense and intuitively know you're ready before you think you are. That's happened for me. And a lot of times you've looked inwards. What do I really, really want to do? What ignites that light inside of me and how can I make that shine brighter? No matter what other people say to me, I'm gonna go for that. Greetings, I'm Ashley Samuels McKenzie. And I'm Charles Parkinson. And welcome to How I Became. Where we unveil the unscripted journeys of inspirational figures. Hi, I'm Harjot Singh, and this is how I became Global Chief Strategy Officer of McCann World Group. With a nature to question everything, this guest journey has been about sidestepping the status quo. Starting his life in India and moving around a lot in his youth provided him ample opportunities to know himself and uniquely grow. Encompassing the notion that there is no cap to what you can achieve. Learning that you should never rate yourself on others' expectations, as that's just what they believe. Sharp wit, humour and wisdom. No wonder he's a global player. Ready to rise to any opposition, be that a perspective, a challenge or a staunch naysayer. I hope you're ready for fabulosity and glitz and a sprinkle of glam. Introducing Hajo Singh, Global Chief Strategy Officer at McCann World Group. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you. It's your life in a poem. I love it. Can I just borrow that and use that as my bio? Yeah, <laughs> it's that's perfect. a great idea. Yeah. You know, the haiku of Harjo. Yes. <laughs> it's perfect. And before, you know, you have a panel discussion or a talk, yeah. Ashley can come on, do the poem, give you a proper intro. I just make sure everybody else memorizes that. <laughs> so, you know, put it on Lyric Finder. <laughs> <laughs> Your life, we've broken down into six chapters, which we'll share today. Chapter one, mm -hmm. an international early life around the world. Chapter two, a change in circumstances. Out of money, out of a home, needing a job. Mm -hmm. Chapter three, you think I shouldn't go to China, Watch me. <laughs> Chapter four, from Toronto to New York City to London, rising up to a global role. Chapter five, learning how to Marie Kondo your feedback. <laughs> Chapter six, global CSO of McCann World Group. Yeah. So let's just start. We're going to hear the story of how you became that role. Um, but let's hear it. <laughs> The, the background of McCann, to begin with, before we hear your story, give people the context, the scale, the success, the, uh, yeah, the influence this organization has in this world. What's, what's the backstory to 
McCann World Group? Well, McCann World Group is one of um, the most, um, you know, storied and um, iconic uh, agency networks in the world, in the history of the profession. It's been around for over 100 years, and uh, you can't say the same for a lot of brands. You know, brands now, they live a lot, um, they don't live as long. Mm. And McCann's been around for over 100 years, more 112 almost. And, um, you know, it's it operates in over 120 countries. Wow. And uh, we work with some of the world's most uh, meaningful, iconic, and important brands, whether that's MasterCard, whether that's L'Oreal, whether that's Microsoft. We work with um, brands that people are, that are important to people and that are changing the world and changing lives and um, have, been around, have been doing that forever. And we've been helping them do that um, in ways that are commercially and creatively very, very interesting and uh, impactful. What's fascinating there is not only do you, do you work with L'Oreal, but in 1973, McCann New York launched the campaign for L'Oreal's coloring products featuring the line, I'm worth it. Right? Yes. Uh, to explaining why they're willing to spend more on their hair. Yes. So the, McCann are the makers of that. Not only that, uh, Ash, I think you should read this, not me. <laughs> what yeah. is it? There are some things money can't buy for anything else. There's MasterCard. <laughs> yes. Creators of that yes. too. Yes. Just really, really, um, you know, very iconic brand platforms. We call them brand platforms because they, they are exactly that. They have this amazing superpower to help brands remain current and enduring at once. Mm. And that's, you, you can see why that works with these kinds of examples. And it was 1997 that McCann World Group was formed, which includes McCann, or at the time, McCann Ericsson Worldwide, and what would become MRN McCann, Momentum Worldwide, McCann Healthcare Worldwide, Weber Shandwick, and Future Brand. And that's the story of McCann World Group. Yes, it's continued to grow, you know, as the marketing landscape became more and more, you know, complex and um, you know cre had creative demands and imperatives uh, we grew just as quickly with it to offer solutions to our clients that were just as impactful and uh, just as creative and just as uh, you know path-breaking as mm -hmm. uh, their ambition and objectives were so this gives people watching and listening that just the scale of this organization that you are global chief strategy officer of McCann World Group and we're going to tell the story yeah how you got there let's take it all back to where things began uh tell us about where things began your father was in the <clears throat> army mm -hmm. which meant you traveled a lot you're moving around a lot of places just tell us what the your very early life was was like well I was born in um 1974, mm -hmm. the jig is up. Everybody knows my age now. <laughs> so I was born in 1974 and I was born in India. And it's interesting because uh, for those of you who know, you know, the history of the world and India and the economy and all of that, you know, India only became part of the global economy um, once it got deregulated in 1990. So, you know, the first 16 years growing up in a country 
where you know it was really a reference unto itself you know that that is very interesting because you're in this country that's massive you're the huge population and um you aren't part of the global economy so to speak you know it's not a it's not like you 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 see all the brands that you see there today for example mm. there was an indian version of everything mm. so what that you know in retrospect what that teaches you by observation is to invent and be self-sufficient mm. and look for solutions within the resources that you have that are available to you to create those kinds of um, you know experiences and solutions so the, for example there was no coca-cola when i was growing up in india but we had our own uh, soft drink called thumbs up or camper cola and now it's become a huge thing with all the young people all over the world it's a thing now these drinks but when i was growing up we didn't have that the only um you know there was unilever was around because it was part of um it was part of an indian company called hindustan lever so you know for example soaps like lux were around but the other product portfolio wasn't there you know we didn't have any fast food restaurants we never had mcdonald's but you had your own version of McDonald's for What example was when I was growing yeah. up there was a fast food restaurant it was called Hot Millions and Hot it millions. wasn't McDonald's or KFC but it had its own it did what you would have wanted McDonald's to do for you mm. as a kid if that was your jam so partly you know those 16 years were quite interesting because you're growing up in this world where you're aware of these references and especially with my background and upbringing you know i was exposed to what was going on in the world mm. that wasn't available um and accessible where i was growing up so for example what that does is it creates this sense of not ambition and desire but this very silent resolve it's drip fed that you know this what i see what i experience what meets the eye isn't the end these are not this isn't the boundary of what's possible of yeah. what exists so just having those references having the awareness that what uh, what was around me wasn't the entire universe this was just a little dot in what the rest of the world was that was huge you know it just drip feeds this sense of curiosity and ambition in you that. that you're going to actually see experience and accomplish mm, yeah. and maybe even have all of that so that's how you grow up you move every two two and a half years and what um, impact did that have on you got moving every two to three years yeah. is a lot especially at that age you're constantly having to make new friends oh yes get into a new school how it works how how was what impact did that have on you well in retrospect you know initially when you're a child you know it's like what's the expression fish a fish doesn't recognize water like when you're a kid you don't really know any different when you're an army officer's kid you're like okay well this is just how life is you just get up and go every 2 3 years and uh, you move to a new place and it's a new home and there are new faces maybe a new language maybe new sights smells food a uh, new school new teachers maybe a new syllabus maybe new friends maybe new bullies maybe new naysayers maybe new teachers that don't like you and new teachers that do like you maybe new people that see you and maybe new ones that don't and so you know it's really quite interesting in that sense but uh when you're going through that you can have two kinds of you know my whole life i've always looked at it and said well it could have been this but it ended up being this and 
I think you could have you could experience this reality very differently and go like, oh, I have no childhood friends. Like I literally don't. I would not be able to tell you. You know, sit around people and say, oh, he's my friend since grade two. Well, I don't have friends <laughs> since grade two. Mm. I've grown up with, you know, because I've never lived anywhere more than two, three, four yeah. years in my whole life. It's hard to build and, those um, some connections. But in, in retrospect, what that does do is every time you go somewhere, you can reinvent yourself. Mm. There's also that. So you learn, you know, from a young age what reinventing yourself is. What do you want to leave behind? What do you want to take forward? What do you want to, you know, try out mm. and, um, you know, know that if you don't make it or if it's not going to work, you know that in three years you're going to be able to maybe leave it behind yeah. so there was no social media you know at that time so there was some pros and cons of it um and um you know it was that so you went to a number of schools you went to yeah. boarding school for yeah. a bit you lived with your grandparents yes for, for eight years bit. eight years is that in Bom in india bombay yeah in chandigarh Chandigarh. Yeah. Okay. Where's Chandigarh? It's in the north of India. It's a, um, well, it's very interesting because it's a city that was designed entirely, designed and planned and built by Corbusier after independence. Wow. So, yeah, that's the city that my grandparents lived in. It's the city I was born in, and I did live there for eight years with them because at the time my father was posted in um, areas that weren't necessarily family friendly. Right. You know, he yeah. had somewhat challenging um you know engagements and assignments with the with the military so we weren't really accompanying him so i did live with my grandmother that, that those years were quite stable so to speak but at mm. the same time you're not really living with your parents are you mm. so um yeah and when did you live in bombay oh right after that right after that so, so how old you when you, you know, moved to bombay um well i w moved in Closer to high school, just before, and then I stayed there through, you know, university, and so I think my teenage years were spent in that space, in that part of the country, and um, it was very. And of course, I'd been going back and forth a lot because my father's sister lived there. We had lots of family there, so for me, Bombay was always my second home, um, and uh, you know, there was a lot of back and forth, and then I lived there for a while. And what people might not know is Bombay was the center of advertising. And in, film. And film. And, yes. In uh, in India? Yeah. Yeah. And what was that like? Because this is where your advertising enters into your life. Mm. And you see, you know, I guess print magazines and adverts. Yes. yes. What, what was going through your mind when you were seeing these? Oh, my God. So, yes. Um, so, you know, I loved magazines. Um, and... More importantly, I loved reading the magazines my mother subscribed to, not the ones my father read. Um, what kind of magazines were Oh, those? well, you yeah. know, fashion and those kinds of magazines, you know. Yeah. And um, what was interesting, so again, growing up, um, we didn't have Cosmopolitan, Vogue, all of this came to India much, much later. But we had our own versions of that. There, were, there was a fashion magazine, it was called Glad Rags. There was a women's magazine that was called Femina or Women's Era. And there, were just, there was a film magazine called Stardust and Film Fair, it's still around. But there were those magazines that you know, we recognize that you say, oh, there's a Grazia or there's Vogue or Harper's and Queen or whatever. You know, you had those versions there. Mm -hmm. So, well, my mother had plenty of those. And um, I loved going through them. 
And um, in those days, you'd flip through magazines and you'd see these beautiful ads, uh, very clever copywriting, because I was always drawn to stories. So I wasn't mm. one of those really sporty kids who wanted to go out there and play cricket and all in tennis and all of those things as much as my father wished and wanted and forced me to. My comfort came from just kind of, you know, being with my thoughts, reading, going through magazines and imagining what that world is, you know. Mm. And so you'd see these ads and you'd see this very clever copywriting. But at the corner of it, you'd see something that's, that would say, Ogilvy and number 2345, da, 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 da. Or something like that. You just didn't know what it was. But, you know, I'm an extremely observant person. Mm. And there are many reasons. We'll get into that. Why, you know, with my background and my experiences, one becomes extremely observant. Yeah. You know, you could argue, it's is it a form of hypervigilance? Because, you know, you've had difficulties, difficult experiences. Whatever. That's for another part of this conversation. But suffice to say, it was very observant. Mm. And I'd see things like, it would say, Lintas blah 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 number two three four i just quite know what that was you know uh, or mudra or there were all these names Uh, but these ads were amazing for example you know clever copywriting beautiful pictures and then i started to think about what that is later on in high school or you know close to when i was in college and um, i got a job as a news reader on the radio station um to make ends meet um sort of um, I realized those were what we called key numbers. And key numbers were the way in which an advertising agency identified that that work came from their agency. So there was a code. It was almost like an artist credit at the yeah. bottom right corner of a painting because for me I was so drawn to art um, and I would always think oh maybe that's where you look for the credits yeah because there were such beautiful ads I said oh those credits are actually key numbers and then I realized that these things these names called Lintas, Mudra, Ogilvy these are actually the agencies where this stuff comes out of I was like well I've got to have a piece of that that's where I've got to I've got to make this and it just I think that's how it started to, you know, enter my consciousness. And then, of course, once something is in your consciousness and you pay attention to it, you end up manifesting it in your life in some shape or form. You mentioned your father there. How was your relationship with him at this at this time? <laughs> Interesting. Um, you know, my dad and I, we have a good relationship now. Um, Great to but hear. when I was growing up, I really think it was kind of odd because, you know, the ideas of masculinity and the idea of what it means to be masculine and a man and it's just different. You know, I've always kind of like rejected social constructs of and tropes of how a woman has to behave or a child has to behave or families have to look or, you know, subconsciously and now consciously, I've just had an inherent, you know, rejection to belong to and ascribe to structures, rules, and constructs that I've had no intellectual or creative autonomy in creating in the first place. Mm. So for me, it was like, why do I have to fit into these boxes and shapes and constructs that I have had absolutely no say in making or even have had no agency in creating them? So, Mm. you know, for me, I, I, I obviously wasn't as articulate at that time, but I had these very strong feelings about wanting to reject just because you say so doesn't isn't the reason why I would 
do as told. Mm, I've always yeah. had that problem with like hierarchy and authority for that reason. And, you know, he was in the army, mm, had wielded mm. a lot of authority because he's quite senior and did quite was quite influential, whatever. But, you know, he had a lot of, that was his reality. And, you know, he kind of obviously respected rules and that rules were his life and structure was his life. And I was just like, you know, well, that's not what, so <laughs> it was always, there was a lot of conversation and debate and there was a, just a lot of, you know, him just throwing his hands up and saying, I don't understand. Like he, mm. I think I might've really frustrated him a lot. It might've been that way both ways. Yeah, yeah. so. Some, sometimes when you're faced with like, the opposition to how you think, it just fuels you to think that way more. Right? Yeah, always. Mm. Because, you know, I think depending on what kind of person you are, mm. I think some people can, you can beat them into submission. Yeah. I don't personally think of myself as one of those people. Mm. But I really do think that when someone tells you what, why, that things have to be a certain way yeah. and they cannot explain mm in a way that makes sense for you, yeah. I don't think you're obliged to accept that. No. Obviously, I'm not, you know, there, there's law and order, yes. I'm not gonna argue with why we have to, you know, behave a certain way mm. on the street and, you know, on the tube and all of that. I'm not arguing with that part, but I'm saying, generally speaking, someone tells you, boys are supposed to behave like this and play cricket and come back and then do this, that and the other and read Hardy Boys or whatever and not wanna read, I don't know, um, Nancy Drew um, who said yeah. or boys don't wear this or this colour is a girl's colour or this colour is a boy's colour who decides that mm. who decides that both your socks have to match all the time like I that was me as a child yeah. why should I have to wear matching socks all the time <laughs> I think that <laughs> paints a brilliant picture of Harjo I just his, argue with everything his late, yeah. late teen, you know, early life <laughs> yeah. you know disrupting the world and yeah. clearly yeah. you know it is great to hear uh, now you have a great relationship with your father yeah but at the time you know two very different values you know you want to break all the rules he thinks you should keep them all yeah and uh just very very different well we still so, argue I'm sure <laughs> <laughs> which family doesn't so um you go to the Symbiosis Institute of Business Management, mm -hmm. and you do a business degree. Yes, I do an advertising and business. Um, I do two masters, because mm. uh, I was in such a rush to get out of there. Wow. And the reason I went there is because I just had this urgency to kind of get it done with, because I knew this was just one more thing I had to do so that I could do what I wanted to do which was get make ads like make ads like that and be out of this kind of like blind submission to kind of like this is this is just it you just it's just the way it is because it is that way you know yeah. and i think i just um knew that what's going to give me a competitive edge because i knew at that point very 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 early on that my ideas weren't enough because of mm. my environment i needed mm. more because I didn't want to just succeed on that stage. I didn't want to just succeed on the B chord, so to speak. I'm not saying that that is the B chord, but mm. for me it was. Mm. I said, I want more. So therefore I needed to acquire everything I could, which is within my means and my grasp, to have more and to be able to position myself to accomplish more. So I did two masters at that time. Wow. I didn't really, um, you know, and then I read the news at night and, um, my whole point was I was very focused that that's what I'm here to do and um, get into advertising. Yeah. yeah. And, and just, uh, yeah. So you get your master's 
What happens next? Um, I go and apply for an internship at Ogilvy because I knew that I was told that's the best agency. I said, well, then I just have to work at the best. You have to be at the best. You know, yeah. I have to. I'm, I'm going to start there. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, <laughs> so I did go there. And obviously you apply to many others, but then they kind of tell you that, oh, we've got, we don't have vacancies or, you know, you're not the right fit is what you hear a lot. And um, I was just like, well, I don't want to fit in because Mm -hmm. the whole point was every time you go to an advertising agency, I I saw that very early on. They're all like, you know, they'd give you this idea about how they talk about themselves. We make bold work. We make work that kind of like disrupts things or breaks conventions or makes people that sit up and take notice and all of those things. You can't do that stuff if it just fits in with everything you want to see and know. Mm-hmm. So when people told me that, I'll never forget this was first time that someone said, well, you're just never going to fit. You're just not a good fit. And I was just like, well, do you make work? Do you, Don't you want to make work that doesn't fit exactly what kind of work do you want to make and um you know basically uh short of calling me smart alec that would have been a polite thing for him to say to me (laughs) but he wasn't as polite and he showed me the door and thought i was too lippy but then my point was okay well um that's how it works Mm. so i did you know do some research and people told me well ogilvy's the best um shop here um, it's the most globally connected. And I was like, well, that's what I want. Yeah. That's where I have to be. So I went there. And I saw people. You know, the the good thing is they had structure. So I met lots of different people, account directors and people who I thought were, you know, they had really important jobs because they had these offices. And I saw these ads that I'd seen in the magazine. They were framed in their offices. Wow. And I was like, oh, my You're God. You're like, I'm here. This, this is I've, where this I is have where to. Yeah. yeah. And. Um, oh, cool. And then I'd see them and somehow I thought, oh, they're just regular people. And you, you expected know? these, maybe people like yourself, you know. Or just people, I thought they were like going to be really kind of different. And what was I thinking? Mm. And that was my point. I'm like, why have I wasted, why would you waste any time telling yourself stories that where you want to go is full of people who are very different than just people you can never be like. Mm. They're just people Mm. who use their imagination to come up with really interesting ideas. And your imagination is just as valid as anybody else's. You know, I just kind of had that, I felt that from the very beginning. And that's why some people liked me and some people thought I was just too, what was the expression? Full uh, of uh, certainty, Uh, not overconfident, very certain. And, you know, the, you, you're often told uh, you must be more humble. And I really did struggle with that. And we'll talk mm. about how, that big mm. aha moment I had about humility, which is just so overrated. So paint the picture of your current life circumstance, because you, you grew up in, you know, um, in, in, in a great environment. You had you went to great schools and um, well, I say great environment, but it, it, as you said yourself, it was privileged. You had lots of yeah. means. Everything was good. But at this time in your life, things had changed. Why had they changed? And paint the picture of your current circumstances. As I grew up, I became more and more aware of, 
I think from a very early age, I was very aware of how different I was from everyone around me. Um, you know, I was different from my cousins. I was different from people around me. I didn't relate to a lot and I didn't hide that. And I was different. I wasn't a regular boy like many of those other boys around me. And she got bullied and you got kind of like picked on. And I never got discouraged by that. I just had this silent resolve in me like, oh, I'm just going to be out of here and I'm going to show you and all of that. And we'll see, you know, like when I was in school, we had this thing where I just, we, a few of us had invented this thing called the LLC. It was the Last Laugh Club. And I was like, <laughs> oh, we're all going to be part of the Last Laugh Club because we're all going to get together and have the last laugh. And, you know, I've always had that kind of, um, even as a child, oh. this idea of uh, I shall prevail I don't know where it came from. I mean, now, of course, I understand. But as a child, you know, I just had that in the face of so much of unpleasantness because I did encounter a lot of violence, a lot of, um, I would go as far as saying, well, not as far. I encountered abuse and violence, a lot of it, and quite frequently um, growing up, especially in my younger tween and teen years. And as that happened, I became even more aware of the fact that, you know, this doesn't define me. I was, you know, the idea was that that just gave me even more and more sense of certainty that I'm not like you. And, you know, so by the time I was not 18, 19, it had really reached the water was boiling, so to speak. It had mm -hmm. reached a boiling point. I had um, made it very clear I wasn't going to do as told by my parents, my, my father especially. I wasn't going to be like um, bullied into submission into, you know, if you don't do this, you won't have this, this, that and the other. And um, I was, um, you know, very I wasn't going to be in the closet or hide who I was. So I was just jarring in so many ways that the only way was either you would get cut off or you cut yourself off. And both happened to me. Wow. Both happened to me. Not only did I cut myself off, I even got cut off. And uh, then I was like, and I think that was supposed to scare me into uh, conformity. Like mm -hmm. some of the other experiences in my childhood, like, you know, I was, if I didn't like something, if I thought something was unpleasant or scary, I was kind of encouraged to see it more because that would kind of toughen me up and all of those things. Mm -hmm. When you say cut off, what, what, what do you mean? It just means that, you know, a little bit you're on your own. You, you have to fend for yourself. No financial Everything, support. All of no it. place to live. Yes. Well, you have to figure it out on your own. You're not going to get own. like a handout. Yeah. Like many of my friends and um, contemporaries were, had that support. And I just kind of realized that was beginning, that started waning for me. And I was like, mm. oh, I'm going to have to figure something out on my own. So I had to be more resourceful. How did it feel? You know, at the time, I think um, I've had to process everything much uh, in hindsight. Mm. Because in that moment, you're in survival mode. You're in, mm. you're hypervigilant because I think you have practice. When you've experienced trauma growing up and you've experienced a lot of difficulties every two, three years, you know, that kind of uh, displacement and then all the, you know, the, you have to like find people who will protect you um, and be, f and, and friends who will be there with you and be on your side all over again, every single time. But just as you have to find those, you also experience new bullies every single time because you're mm. the same person. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, you, are, you, you can 
that 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 can be quite challenging by the time you get to that age and um you tell yourself that you're going to rely on yourself more and you're going to channel everything you have um into feeding your ambition and that just you know it's 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 what propelled me further at that so, age so you're in this position where you're you're at Ogilvy, you're doing the internship. Yes. The internship comes, and you, this is the context. Yes, you're the internship's now on ended. Your, you're on your own. Yeah. You're having to fend for yourself. Yeah. Get money. Yeah. Place to live. Yeah. All these kind of things. Well, I lived at the YMCA. Um, I had to do that. So, um, well, how did that? <laughs> that was very interesting. What was yeah. the moment you walked in there and said, I need a place? Do you remember yeah. that? Yeah. Well, someone helped me get a place. You know, right. I had to ask because it wasn't easy. Um, but I did get a bed. Um initially and um i did have i knew that that's just a place i'm gonna have to figure this out mm. and i was very clear about the fact that i will figure this out mm. you know and um and it wasn't even your own bed you no you it wasn't yeah it. we shared it because in a sense we didn't share a bed. i didn't share it with somebody yeah. but it was one of those places where it was a dorm you know and someone had a job um, and this guy, I think he worked in a call center or something like that. And he had the night shift. So, um, you know, I had the bed to sleep on during the, during night. the night. And yeah. then he would, uh, this you person. Go to so I went to Ogilvy. Go, no, no, I'd left Ogilvy by right. then because it was just an internship. Mm. I didn't um, go back there for my final placement because by the time you finish your internship, finish your degree and you go back into uh looking for work i couldn't they i couldn't get hired there immediately i had to go work elsewhere for six months before i got hired at another agency at Rediffusion, which was young and rubicam mm. um so that's what happened I and mean, th those six seven months i figured it out i was like well that's a creative solution i had friends in bombay they helped me out mm. so i stayed with some friends and then i stayed at the y and um then i got a job and then, and then I just kind of like uh, made was, my way out of was there. Was this at the Times? Yes, it was at the Times. So I worked at the Times for almost eight months, nine months, yeah. And that was hard because at this stage, did you have your MBA? Yeah, and I took, I had to take that job, yeah. And you were applying for a job that was just an entry-level role. Yes. And only required an undergrad degree. Yes. You're there applying with the MBA. With a double major. From did a very it, good school. Did yeah. you feel like, what is, what, where, where am I at in life? What is life? Here's the thing. You have to say yes, is what I learned. Mm. If you, you know, one yes will lead to another and another mm. and another. Because I was going to have to get my foot in the door and work my way in and out and up. And you needed money. I you just needed, needed everything. Yeah. Yes. Mm. I needed, I, I couldn't go home, obviously. Mm. I didn't want to. And that wasn't an option for me at the time. Mm. So I just went like, you know what, I'm going to go. And I didn't, oh, I could have gone and worked for like some engineering company that made ball bearings or some kind of IT company that made semiconductors or go work at a bank. And those were all like the kind of jobs that MBA graduates were taking, yeah. um, you know, and those were very prized um, placements. And I refused to go to those placement um, interviews. 
and that's again something that wasn't something that my father or my peers or my family might have actually clapped their hands in glee about that oh well that's just me saying well that's just really boring it's not what i want to do yeah and um, to what you believed in yeah that dream of seeing those ads and getting involved in that world yes and so the job at the times was (laughs) they were like well we need people to help us sell space in the advertising supplement which is you sell ads yeah and i was like and that was something that people did after undergrad and i was just like okay well what's because i was applying because the advertising agencies were not coming to the the ones that came to our campus they weren't the ones that i got hired at and i didn't want to work for them because i want to work for a global advertising agency Mm. it was very clear it has to be there were only three at the time and if i can't get in there I'm in a way to like get in there. I I, oh, I just had that thing like I have to be in that space mm. very clearly. Mm. And so when I went to that job interview, they're like, well, you're overqualified and overeducated for this. And I said, well, what's the job? I said, there's no such thing as being overqualified or overdressed. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, he laughed. I, I remember and he said well I said what's the job he said well listen it's it's you're selling space and I said who are the clients he's like what do you how do you do this what, what what's expected he said you know you go to all the advertising agencies and meet their um, uh, meet people there and convince them to buy space in our in the times and you're like great and I, I was just like meet all, all the, the agencies that's exactly Brilliant. yes I'll mm. take it and I remember everyone was like shocked, like, what are you doing? Like, why are you doing this? This is what undergrad, this is the, the, the undergrad job. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm doing this. And I you said no see. to a campus placement. I could have gone and worked for an engineering company, like I said, in marketing. And I said, no, 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 that's not what I want to do. So I went there and it took me, like, what, six months? Because in, in three months of being there, um, you know, it took no time for this woman who ran the color magazine division, which owned the biggest glossy magazines because the Times was huge in India. It owned all the publications. And so and that's the year Cosmopolitan was coming into the country and she just owned all of that. She ran all of that and she's like, you should be on my team, which was the very kind of like glossy and, um, you know, you would argue the slightly more glamorous side of the business, mm. not just selling space in the top right-hand corner of the newspaper. Oh. So I said, well, that's really perfect. So in three months, I was working in that division. And um, in no time after that, I was in the agency world because it. I was working with somebody who ran the Revlon business at YNR, and we had a really good conversation. And um, one thing led to another, and... I was an account executive on the Revlon business. Wow. And that's just, and that was when I would say, you know, we clicked into gear and I've never looked back since. I love that. Yeah. What's the lesson from that story so far? The lessons from there, I think, resilience and not losing sight, not losing sight ever of like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm not going to do that conventional stuff. I'm not going to go and work somewhere that I don't want to work. I think there's a lot of merit in, in that whole mindset because not many can hold out. It takes resilience, it takes taking the pain, of which you'd gone through a lot of that by that time, to really just go for it. And as you say, a yes can lead to a yes. Yeah. And then look where it took you. Yeah, I mean, I think um, exactly when you've, uh, when you know what you want a little bit, not 
you never know exactly what you want, mm. but you sort of know what you want. Yeah. You very, it's very, I think it's very, when you know what, um, even if you have a slight idea of what you want, I feel from my experience, you have a much more specific idea of what you don't want. Yes. That is true for me. Like, even if your idea about what you want is slightly vague, your idea about what you don't want is always more specific. Mm. So if it is that, reject it. Listen to your intuition. Mm. Do not say yes to something that is very specifically within the criteria of what you don't want. Like, there's no need to do that. So in, I think in less than a year from starting there, you got into the world of strategy. Yes. I, I, I mean, happen? less than, yeah, that, that took no time. Mm-hmm. And did you know that strategy is my area, the area I want, or did you yes. fall into it? Yes. Well, when I was interning, I'd done that already. I see. You what see, when you I like interned, um, they wouldn't hire, they weren't looking for strategy interns at the time. It's mm-hmm. another time. And I was like, well, I have to be at Ogilvy. I want to be there. Yeah. And I did manage to talk my way into that internship. But they said, well, you know, the creative director needs a proofreader. You've got good command over the language. And they gave me a copy test. And I took a copy test. I did well in the copy test. So, well, you know, you can proofread. And that's a <laughs> really dull job. But an important one at that. <laughs> because, you know, if you sometimes grammar. if you make a mistake in those days, you would uh, manual artworks. You know, there was a lot of... You, you you had to be very good at that. Yeah. So at commas and punctuation and all of that. So thank God I had a good education. I could just go like, yeah, I know the difference. Grammar was good and spelling was good and all of that. So I said, yeah, okay, well, I'll do the proofreading. But it took me, well, what, four or five weeks. And I remember he's a very temperamental creative director who would get really ma- angry at badly written briefs. Mm. And then I just started doctoring the briefs so that he wouldn't get angry at the people. And then someone found out that I was doctoring the briefs and they came up and spoke to me, this woman. By the way, that's a totally different thing. Every single time I've had this upgrade into the next portal, there's always been a woman who's helped me. Mm. Always. Always. I've been helped so much by people who've experienced and navigated the industry from a different point of view because I feel like they saw me. Mm. And, you know, and I think, and that is something I'm so passionate about doing as well. But anyway, back in the room. So when they did that, uh, she said to me, she's like, well, are you doctoring these briefs? I'm like, I'm so sorry. And please, like, you know, just, it just, he's better this way. Everything's better. She's like, she just, why don't you just come do this full time? I'm like, there's a full time job where you can kind of just write briefs. And she's like, yes, it's called research and strategy. Come and join my team. Mm. So I did my, the rest of my internship with her. She was very sorry she couldn't hire me when time came because there were no vacancies at the time. But um, I knew I'd had the taste mm. of what that job was. I see. Mm. And so when I came to YNR, I did Revlon for what, just a few months. And I was in strategy very quickly. Because I think once you're in and people see what you're capable of and you know what you're capable of, y- you just you work your way into that space. Mm. Yeah. I did. And I... That's, that's how it happened. And so this is 1996 to 98. Yes. And then 98, you go to, how does Coca-Cola come into the story? Yeah, so I wanted to do even better. And I was like, well, you know, 96 to 98 was an interesting time. I did really well and, um, you know, was on lots of pitches. And, you know, you you get a good experience, get a good understanding of how the world of advertising is, all these different categories. Mm -hmm. You work with global teams and all of that. And I said, well, I have to be on a global career path. Because, you know, I wanted to do that on my own merit because... 
I had a very clear idea, not just that I wanted to prove something to people who may have necessarily told me that all my choices were, weren't going to be uh, constructive or they weren't going to add up to something, whatever. But my thing was, no, I had to prove that also to myself. And I said, well, I want to be on a global career path. And I just realized that to be on that, you just need to be in a different playing field. And when I went and asked for that, they were like, well, you don't have enough experience. So you're in your early 20s asking, I want to be on a global yes. pathway. Yeah. I mean, what like, does it take to be on that path, on that trajectory? Not what many 20-year-olds ask are asking. <laughs> but not many 20-year-olds were like me. That's very true. Yeah. And, you know, and uh, I was just, when I wanted that, and the whole thing was, my understanding was, I was so used to the fact that what people would tell you is like, why you aren't good enough why you won't fit into this why you shouldn't be aiming this high why this is out of your grasp like by this time in my life that was just something like i'm like please tell me why you think i can't it was mm. it was almost like that <laughs> so yeah. because it's really in uh, important information because you know exactly what you need to turn on its head because that's the universe just telling you oh that's the song you need to kind of like crank up the volume on so um well you know you need to have more marketing experience, more client experience. You need to kind of like work in on bigger brands. And that's when, you know, you, well, well why can't I do that here? Well, there's people who've been doing this longer than you have, and they've got to be given the first chance and this, that, and the other. And I'm like, well, no, but that doesn't, this isn't the military service mm -hmm. or the government service where just number of years decide how long you've done something decides whether you should be even allowed to pitch yourself for uh put yourself forward for um an opportunity it was sort of like that so i said well what does it what do i have to do work for clients work for a marketing company what's the best marketing company in the country yeah. and coca-cola was obviously the most prized job because they had just re-entered the country in the late 90s wow. and um and i said well i'm gonna go and find a job at one of the biggest multinational companies because that was the thing. Mm. So I applied to Nestle and I applied to Coca-Cola and I applied to Procter and Gamble. And I was just started to do that, and you know. And I said I'm not going to apply to any of our clients because that's going to look too easy. Mm. So and also I didn't want to compromise. I was a little afraid that I'd get, you know, into I might, I might piss someone off for trying to get a job with a client who's part of the agency. So I really didn't I looked outside of that mm. and I just started the process of applying and trying to find out what it takes and I managed to get an information interview at Coca-Cola and um, I met one person then I met another person and I got a job as an assistant marketing manager at Coca-Cola and so I went there Yet again, yeah, I manifested said, the, manifest. the goal. So I said, I'm just going to go do that. And initially they were like, well, you know, the job is in the eating and drinking channel. It was retail marketing. I was like, okay, well, what that, you know, that's channel marketing. And I said, I'll do it because I want to learn. And I went and did that. And I got to work on some really interesting projects and engagements, learned how the business works, learned how you build a brand in a B2B and a channel marketing capacity which is just as interesting than you mm. do in a you know regular not regular but like to a consumer person people to people capacity um and it was great fun i met lots of people made lots of friends 
and um, had a great two years there. Two years there, mm. and then back to YNR. Yeah, I went to, then I went to the States, actually, okay. and then came back to YNR, and they called me, and I remember having that conversation with one of my ex-bosses, and she said to me, she's like, you should, you, if you wanna come back, you, now's a good time. And I said, mm. okay, and I did. And they set me up. They really looked after me after that. What role? What role was this that you went into? I went in as a, the as a planning director. Planning director. Okay. Yeah, I came back and you know I got set up and I got to go on a secondment to Australia and I got to go to um, work in the office in Singapore and help be part of the global team that built and launched the brand asset valuator, which was the big um, tool study empirical. Uh, empirically led and empirically evidenced brand building tool at YNR in those days. And I was part of that team and I got to build that and work on that in India and learn from teams in other markets as well. And, you know, just one thing led to another. And then I guess things just took off from there. So this is really kind of a pivotal moment in your career as you start to you know, work on big global yeah, projects exposure. and exposure and exposure. get up to director level and this is where um after this is where where china comes into the picture yeah and what were people saying to you about you you going to to china how, how does it come up as an opportunity and and what were people saying to you <laughs> well china was interesting so i was working out of the singapore office at the time and uh, you know on a project and uh, as part of that was also learning from um, the team there. And um, one of, um, she's an amazing woman and she really helped me at Coke as well. And she was now running Pepsi um, for the region marketing. And uh, she said to me, she's like, you know, you're doing really well and you should, um, what do you want to do next? So how, and I said to her, isn't any, well, I tell me I, I met her for a, just to talk mm. and um, I said to her I said I want to you know work in more markets I want I'm ready for you know I want a global career path and I want to actually I'm really curious about this I've had lots of little stints in different markets I think I want to kind of like really focus on a growing market that is in India and um, you know I want to go and do that and I didn't want to just go back to the States or go to Canada or any of that stuff. I just wanted to work my way there through the industry, you know, not through just like okay, go back there and then start from there. I, I, I wanted to chart a path. Mm. And uh, she gave me some really good advice. And she said, you know, Asian, um, BBDO in Shanghai is a really good agency and uh, you should talk to them. I said, will you help broker an introduction for me? And she did broker an introduction for me. She introduced me to a couple of people who I emailed and talked to them. And as it turned out, they were willing to have a conversation. And so I had a conversation over the phone and then we had a couple of emails and then I got invited to come and show up for the interview. And uh, that was the basis upon which I was either gonna end up working there or not. And the interview itself was an extremely interesting experience. I don't know if I've ever told you what happened. No. Yeah. So um, he says to me, this guy who was running the operation in China, why don't you come to Shanghai on Thursday? I said, okay, well, I'll come on Thursday. What time? He said, you should meet at 8.30 in the morning at my office. 
okay, that's fine. So my office will send you the address or we'll put you up for um, a couple of days when yeah. you come in, we'll send you the address and we'll send you the address of the hotel, uh, of the of the, of the agency. Mm. Sure. Now, I've never been there, obviously. And in my world, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I've kind of, uh, you know, I'm quite worldly. I've traveled. I'm, I'm going to figure this out, mm-hmm. you know. And um, so I get the address in the, over the email and show up. I arrive there. And it's a very regular address. It says 500 Yanan Road West. <laughs> and, um, you know, I've been in the States before that. And I'm thinking, yeah, it's just like any other. St- it's, it's, it's an address. Mm. It's number, direction, street. Mm. Now, when I get there, this is 2002. I get to China. It's just at the end of SARS. So it's quite mm. kind of like a bit difficult. And you get there. You first, you realize, oh, my God, I'm going to have to figure out how I'm going to get a cab. Because I'd never, I just thought, oh, it's just, I'm just going to walk out, hail a cab. cab. I'm just so New York. I'm going to walk out, hail a taxi. (laughs) Taxi. Get a taxi. And then I'm going to go to the hotel or whatever, stay there on whatever road west. And then I'm going to just show up with my two Starbucks coffees and be like, hey, let's talk. I thought that's how I kind (laughs) of (laughs) look. Little did I know, it was just a project getting a cab. And then I realized, hey, I have to explain where I have to go. And, uh, you know, the word that he didn't understand me because I didn't speak um, Mandarin at the time. Mm. So it was quite a a project because it took almost two hours. We were driving and he did his very best because, you know, I kept repeating the address for him. The name of the street was fine. But, you know, West, the word in Mandarin is very different. The numbers, the the characters are very different. But, you know, and that street is one of the longest streets in Shanghai. And it's like, you know, (laughs) it's really hard to kind of like find that. And so... The lovely man that he was, he just said, you know, I'm obviously I'm not going to abandon you. So he just kept going, going, going. And I'm really getting. And then I see from the corner of my eye, um, um, the Western Hotel um, sign. And I'm like, go there, 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 there. We're going to go there. No, I wasn't staying there. I was put up somewhere else. Oh, right. But in that moment, at about midnight or something, I don't know why. It's like, we're going to go there. And we walked in there. And I remember tearing through the lobby, going like, does somebody speak English? Uh. <laughs> and someone was really nice there. The lady at the concierge, she's like, yeah, what do you want? I can help you. And I said, well, I'm trying to get to this address. She said, do you have the Chinese address? I'm like, no. She's like, you need to know every name has a Mandarin equivalent. And you need to know your address in mm. Mandarin so you can actually get to where you have to go to. Yeah. So please, can you help me out? So she wrote it for me on a piece of paper. Oh, at that minute... I said to her, I have a meeting tomorrow morning at 8.30. Can you write me this address as well, please? Mm, Ah, Smart. Yes. And she said, I will. And she did. And that's when I went like, don't ever assume anything. Mm. So got to my hotel, woke up next day, very confident, showed up at 15 minutes before the meeting time. I'm waiting for him at the office. And he looked at me and he's like, you made it. I'm like, yeah. And he's like, and I said to him, I said, well played. Because he knew what he was doing. Yeah, he knew what he was doing. And that's what he said. He says, You're going to be okay here. Wow. Wow. The interview before the interview. (laughs) Can you even get here? And he was an amazing mentor to me. Like, Mm. he opened many doors for me after that. It's a wonderful, wonderful man. And you spent uh, four years in China. Yeah. And you worked with Visa, um, PepsiCo, FedEx, Dulux, Procter and Gamble. Chrysler, Sony. Yeah, all of them. Yeah, amazing. 
He led the Strategy and Consumer Insight Initiative for Visa that culminated in an internationally recognized, successful local advertising campaign specifically for China. Yeah, for for the the first first time. time. Pretty big stuff. We invented a potato chip. Are you an agency or brand that would like to work with our production company, Unity and Motion? If so, contact us at unityandmotion.com. We produce commercials and social content for brands such as Chanel, Amazon, Reebok, Harrods, The Ritz, and many more. Now back to the show. Invented a potato <laughs> chip. Well, the agency did. I was part of the team that did that. Yeah. How oh, cool. Yeah. So your career's going very well, and you're on your pathway. You are just determined to have this global role. Where'd you go next? What happens next? After that, um, I went back to Canada. Uh, when been I been in Canada before. Yes. So, you know, I finished this and I, I'd never worked there, obviously. Mm. So um, between China, after Shanghai, I was spending a lot more time in Berlin because I was working on Allianz and I was uh, spending time between Shanghai and Berlin a lot. Um, the time came, I just realized that all my next moves, um, you know, uh, everything that was coming my way was to remain in Asia. And do you want to be in Hong Kong or do you want to move to Thailand? Or do you want to go to Japan or do you want to go back to Singapore? It's like, no, I need to go to New York. That's mm. where I want to go because I need to do something that's different. I need to do something that's not here. Uh, if I'm going to do and I'd like to kind of, you know, work in a different part of the world. I'd already worked in India. I'd already experienced what it was to live in Asia Pacific. I'd done a regional role there. I'd been to all the markets. I was genuinely curious. I was only 29. Wow, I was like, wow. no, there's more. I don't want to sit here and be one of those expats. Nothing against them, but I wasn't one of them to just be like, you know, I'm just going to get really comfortable living in Asia Pacific. You know, mm. I could have just stayed there, continued learning Mandarin. And, you know, all of those things. I have many friends who stayed there for 10, 15, 20 years. And you um, wanted this, you needed this globalized knowledge of yes, global markets. Yes, I, I wanted to experience the world. Right. And um, I realized that I could, um, well, I applied for work. And at the time, I have to say, BBDO did try very hard, but it was difficult, you know, with visas and all of that. Um, yeah. it, it's not that easy, uh, especially, you know, as the moves get more and more tricky. It does get difficult. But at that point in time, um, they did help me. Uh, relocate uh, to Toronto and I ended up working for Leo Burnett over there and uh, worked for Gray and um, very quickly I found myself in New York. So Mm -hmm. Toronto was my, it was like I I moved to Toronto to kind of like, you know, basically also decompress and, um, you know, get back into the North American region and work in that environment and get acquainted with those clients and in that Uh, industry and um, I moved to I got headhunted and then I moved to New York quite quickly after that so you go from senior strategy partner at Cosette yes and then vice president of strategic planning when you moved to Leo Burnett that's in Toronto and then senior vice president and head of strategy at Gray so you're really rising up the ranks every time all through this period are you still cut off from your family are you speaking to them you've yes. obviously made this huge i'm focusing on myself. translation mm. since you know being at the ymca 
you're no longer sharing a bed with someone. You know? Well, I never really shared a bed with so, him, uh, but you know, you know, taking turns. Taking turns, you know. Um, yeah, what is the relationship with your family at this point? Cordial. Cordial. You know, I was focused on, I was very focused on work. I was really enjoying it. And I was like, having my own setbacks and learning from them. And, you know, this wasn't, this isn't something that just, it wouldn't be like, I'd just wake up the next morning and be like, oh, here's your next move. I was working quite consciously on creating this path for myself. Like I, mm -hmm. this is all I, I, I had committed myself to this journey. And I was, that was what I was in a relationship with at the time. Yeah. Like, um, and so. at what point, I mean, obviously when you when you go off and you're you begin sort of forging your own destiny maybe family members are thinking well let's see how long before he comes back at what point do you think they realized oh he's really making something of himself and we're proud of him well i think i think deep down they always knew my mother and father both knew. Here's the thing about my parents. They're both extremely strong and very kind of like individually driven people. So I think they might have known that, uh, you know, one of, he's probably not going to be like, quite like the way we would have expected him to make the choices, the ones we would have liked him to make or turn out the way we would have wanted him to turn out like. But I think... They knew that the apple doesn't fall that far from the tree. I was going to kind of go, keep myself going and uh, make choices and, uh, and, and, and move forward with, uh, pick myself up and keep moving because that's their story as well. So they're very kind of unapologetic and strong and um, strong-willed people. Well, it wasn't going to be like some completely diffident um, doormat. So mm. that was to be expected. I wasn't. I just wasn't strong, and um, you know, opinionated in the same way they are. Would you, for example, you get this senior vice president and head of strategy at Grey Group, massive agency, very big role. Would you call them and say, "Hey, you know, I've got this new role." Um. Well, you know, my pa no. No, 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 because it's. I wasn't doing it for that. I mean, mm. it's obviously, it'd come up in a conversation. That, oh, I'm working here now. But, um, and also, I think advertising as an industry wasn't something my parents were, you know, quite uh, acquainted with. They didn't mm. know what this group versus the other group and what's the difference between this title or that title. My mom would just say, like, are you happy? Is this what you want to mm. do? Are you enjoying it? And, yeah. In fact, uh, you know, I was, my mother and I, we, we, we were very close and she would talk to me about she would just be like, well, are you happy? And when I wasn't happy, I remember saying that to her when I was, um, there was a point in my career which was very difficult. And I said to her, it's really, really quite challenging. And and she said to me, she said, well, then do something about it. Well, you know it's challenging. She said, well, it's not the most challenging thing you've encountered, have you? She just reminded me of what mm. I'd already overcome. And wow. that's sometimes, that's all you need, mm. yeah. you know? I was like, wait a minute, of course. She's like, well, you know how to do this. So what a brilliant voice to have, you know, with yeah. you on your shoulder. So, um, and then, uh, yeah, what happens next? You said you moved to York, and yeah. this is where the journey of up the the, the ranks of McCann begins. Mm -hmm. How does twelve, thirteen years ago? Yeah, you got headhunted, or yeah, well, I would say headhunted. I had a call. I yeah. someone called me. Um, uh, who? Um, well, from uh, the, one of the people from talent team at Interpublic, Brian, right. called me. And, and Interpublic is the holding, the holding company, company that, mm -hmm. that 
McCamo um, Group is is part of. Yes. So Brian called me, and Brian's office called me actually, and uh, I got a call, and <laughs> I remember thinking to myself, you know, I, it was Mother's Day uh, the weekend prior, and I'd gone to meet my mother, and my mother and I uh, were in Paris the weekend before because you know it was just that we thought we'd just take a little trip. So mm. I met my mother in Paris and I'd spent uh, five good days with her and we had a lovely trip and it was on the way back. It was that, you know, when that, um, what was that volcano in Iceland? That, oh, uh, the ash. Yes, yes that yes. thing had gone off yeah. and our flights were cancelled indefinitely and they were like, it was quite a difficult time to get out of there. Mm. And we were going to go to two different terminals because I was flying to Toronto, she was going elsewhere and all of that. And I remember having this really long and intense conversation with my mom and saying, you know, there are certain things that are really difficult and I don't know if this is really it. I feel like there's more and that this isn't what I just don't feel like this is the place for me because there was stuff going on. Mm -hmm. And that's when she said to me, she's like, well, if, if you then then do something about it put it out there and do something about that. Uh, I said, well, okay. And I remember thinking that to myself. It's just like miraculously, I, you can't write this. I came back, walked into my office, um, which is the Monday, picked up my messages, because those days people left voicemails. Mm -hmm. And I had a message from his office, from Brian's office. I thought it was a crank call. <laughs> I never responded to it. Really? That, yeah, it was, I, it was. I really. I mean, that's. I wasn't in a great place at the time because wow. I was like, I'm sure someone's pulling a fast one. Mm. Yeah. And um, but 24 hours later, I mean, you know, his uh, assistant wrote to me. She's like, Well, we left your voice message. Would you like to have a conversation? I'm like, What was his role at the time? He was head of um, talent. He looked mm, for. Right, he was I out. See. He was. His job was finding talent yeah, and yeah. bringing them to into public. Uh, finding talent all over the world. He's an amazing, amazing man. He's still someone who advises me and still someone who I have so much respect uh, for. And he has since retired. But um, Brian is one of those people. Like I said, it's always been a woman. And then there was Brian. Okay. Um, and uh, I spoke to him and uh, we met and uh, we had a great conversation. And... Um, I put my trust in Brian's um, hands and he said, well, I'm going to introduce you to a few people because I think you're ready for it's 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 like that. It happened for me. Mm. And, and what was uh, the role he was suggesting you're ready for uh, to um, move to 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 meet people at McCann in New York. Mm -hmm. And was there a particular job yes, on the table? There were several. Okay. Uh, there was more than one that I could have done. Oh. And then, of course, I met lots of people and we agreed. We 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 all, you know, the, we established that there was one that was going to be really a good job for me to do. And that was to run General Mills, which was one of the largest clients, huge American client, hundreds of millions of dollars. Like, you know, General Mills, they make all the cereals and food and all of that. And mm. it's like properly like that for me was like, I just wanted to sink my teeth into that because mm. I said, that's what going to America, working in America on something massively that is so, so, so distinctively American Mm. and uh, populist that's what i wanted to do and uh, i really wanted that job um and he was so amazing that he just saw that i would be a good fit for it of course i met lots of people went through the process and um ended up working on general mills and running it 
Wow. And how did that feel when you you got your hands on it? And did you feel like yes? It was touch I've and go. To be many honest, years for this and mm. yes, but you know, it was touch and go, Charles. Because when I went there initially, I was like, oh, I'm going to get this job, and we agreed that I'd be a good fit for it. The U.S. consulate has to give you an appointment to get a visa. Well, of course, you know, yeah. to you do that, and the appointment was almost four or five, almost six months out. Ooh. And uh, we had so much to, there was a greater urgency to fill the position. And once again, Devika Bulchandani, who was the um, uh, uh, person who ran, she was the woman, Devika now runs Ogilvy Worldwide, as you know. But Devika at the time was the, global, was the chief strategy officer. Uh, and she said to me, she's like, we'll wait for the right person. Don't worry about it. Devika waited for me. Oh, wow! Yes, wow. she months. she 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 said, "We'll we'll figure this out. You'll be you're right for McCann." And one more time, like I said, mm. you know, I've always had when you put that much into yourself and you have put yourself out there. I think pe- you will meet people that will match your energy and your yeah, vibration. Definitely. You will meet people who will take as much of a chance on you as you have taken a chance on yourself to put yourself out there. I mean, Devika was there. She's like, "We'll wait." And I was absolutely, I was like, what? Yes. And so um, they helped expedite the appointment. Instead of six months, it took four and a half, five months. And, 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 and I was there and I've been there ever since. Was this, t- what was your first role? What's the job title? Do you remember? Uh, yeah, I, of course I remember my job title. <laughs> I joined uh, McCann New York first as um, SVP Group Strategy Director for General Mills. And then I became the EVP Global Strategy Director because we ran the business. Then I got to build and run the business globally. Was that your first global role? My global client leading, uh, my global role leading a client, yes. Mm. And did you feel at that point like, this is what I've been working towards? Finally, I've got this global remit or you wanted more? No, it's not like wanted more. I just knew like this This was for me a thing that things are in the right direction. I see. Mm. You know, I've always focused on the direction. You know, it's important to focus on direction for me versus destination because when you say I, it's exactly that, I think you could be undercutting yourself. Mm. Yeah. That's all that your imagination can imagine. Mm. So, you know, I think I prefer to focus on the direction and I was like, well, this is in the right direction and that's how one thing led to another after that. What was under your remit in this position? It was to run the uh, portfolio of General Mills brands globally. Mm. We had a hub in Australia, in Dubai, in London, and in Paris, and in the US, and in Mexico. And so I worked with all those teams, and we ran the portfolio very successfully all over the world, and made amazing work, um, and um, created... um, just very, very interesting solutions that have uh, that are still relevant mm. and still interesting. So yeah, it was real fun because you you worked on brands like Betty Crocker and you worked on brands like Nature Valley and you worked on brands like Hamburger Helper and then you worked on brands like Pillsbury. So mm. it was just really interesting. And I worked with Leslie Sims. She was the creative director at the time. We had a great partnership. And what were you learning at this point about You'd had a lot. I want you to explain about what people had said to you over your over the time, and the limits try, people tried to put on you, or the what people advice people gave you, and what 
had you learned by this point about that? So for people listening who are having people constantly tell them, that's not right for you. Or, you you're not going to make it in China. You don't, you need to don't speak the language. You're not going to fit there. Yeah. You're not going to fit here. Anybody listening who, who gets a lot of that, what had you learned at this stage about taking on feedback from others? Well, I think firstly, I think feedback is purely based on uh, what people know. That's their reference and that's their experience. So there are a couple of things that I've learned about this. Is One is every time someone tells you something that, oh, you, sh you can't or you shouldn't, it's because probably that's been their reality. Yeah. And my whole thing is, I'm sorry that was your experience. Mm. That's the way you just move on. Here's the thing. Potential is very, 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 there are three berries here, very personal. Nobody mm. can tell you what your potential is. I think it's incredibly important to remember that. Your potential is an incredibly personal thing. So people can only tell you what they know what's been true for them, what their experiences and references have led them to believe what's become their reality. It's not necessarily your reality. We're all different. We're all unique. We have our own journeys. We have our own understanding of the world. We're not supposed to have the exact same experience like everybody else. So no, that's your experience and thanks for sharing it with me, but please don't insist that that needs to be mine too. Mm. So I think that's really very, very important. And you have to, you've mentioned to us before, it's really important who you give the keys, who you give permission to shape you, yes. to direct you, who you will actually listen to their feedback. Yes. How important is that? And how do you do that? How do you decide on those people? Um, very well. The short answer is that, you know, you can't ev if you if you if you're if you're going to take advice from everybody, then you're not going to accomplish very much, will you? So mm. I think the more important thing is because most of the times when you're not like everybody else, one thing is and you have a clear idea about what you want and or at least a clear idea about the destination, the, the, the direction the, people will tell you, oh, I think um, that might be aiming for too much. That might be too much for you. Or don't aim so high. Or be more, um, what's the word that I, absolutely, humble. Be more humble. Don't put yourself out there like that. Don't make, don't, don't reach like that. And I think you have to really ask yourself, who is telling you that? That's when you realize who's telling you that. Because in my experience, I've realized many times, if not most times, people who are telling you that are people who, for whom you don't fit their understanding and their set of references and beliefs and experiences of what someone who looks like you, walks like you, talks like you, presents like you, should, could, or can accomplish. The minute you're outside that, that's just, they will correct you and tell you, well, you know what, you don't, don't be too much for that. Sometimes it could be even your own family members, parents, because that's been their experience. Sometimes they will tell that, I'm protecting you, don't put yourself out there like that, or don't be so ambitious, or don't be so forthright, or don't be so clear and demanding about what you want to do, don't ask so much of yourself. And that's not necessarily something you need to absolutely obey. And what do you do with that? What goes, how do you handle that? I'm so sorry that was your experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
you know, it's compassion. You have to have, um, you know, uh, compassion. You know, the th it's, I have this thing. It's got, I call it LCD. It's like, first, you have to receive that feedback with love. If somebody's telling you that, you have to give some sense of, like, you obviously must be wishing well for me, which is why you're telling me that. And you can't get angry about it. Compassion. I'm so sorry that's been your experience. It must have been hard that you haven't been able to accomplish that. And then you distance yourself from it and be like, well, I do know what you think my potential is now. Mm. So mm. that information is gold. Mm. You know exactly what to do now. So if I'm listening to this and I'd, I'm in a senior role and I'd love to, to get to a C-suite role, and this is your next transition is to go from a a, uh, a EVP, as you said, to Chief Strategy Officer at McCann World Group. What did you do? What did you demonstrate? How did you get yourself in a position where McCann are going, yes, Harjal is the man for this global, this Chief Strategy Officer role? Well, before that, I became Chief Strategy Officer for Europe. Yes. So I came uh, to do that job. And it was really, I think... Um, it's not like you doing anything different. It's about just being good at what you're doing. And um, it's not really not rocket science, you know, because I think you have to also know that you're surrounded by people who see you. Like, I really do believe that I've had my uh, bad experiences, just like everybody else has. But I was in a place where I was seen I was seen at McCann from the very first day, even mm. before I started. So it's a great place where, um, you know, I felt seen and appreciated and recognized. And, um, uh, you know, I have, um, I knew I was in the right place because the best thing is sometimes, you know, you've got champions around you when they can smell, sense and, in, and intuitively know you're ready before you think you are. Mm. that's happened for me it's not always been me especially at McCann it's happened for me so you should so. make sure you're in a place where one you, you feel like people see you and see your value and see yeah see you who, who, who you really are and, and whose journeys you uh, relate to mm -hmm. and whose journeys you admire and whose work ethic you appreciate whose values you can ascribe to you know you want to be around that energy you have to be in an orbit where the energy works with your energy mm. it's it's you you you, sh you have to share that so you know i and it's not the right orbit for everyone is it so i'm in the right orbit i was in the right orbit where you know i'm for someone who like me who's moved as much as i have mm -hmm. i mean it's the most stability i've had in my life i always say mccann is my second longest monogamous relationship you know <laughs> almost 13 years so i've had a lot of stability here and a lot of excitement here so you you, you have to be around people like that and mccann when uh, i've surrounded by people the leaders are all people who've had very incredible career paths and journeys themselves you know it's like you suddenly come to a place and you realize you're surrounded by people like yourself who have pushed themselves forward and lifted people as they've climbed and shared what they've learned so that made sure that they've helped shortcut the time for other people because, you know, you don't have to... What's the use of learning and knowing all this if everybody's going to take just as long as you did to make their own mistakes? If you can help people avoid some mistakes by sharing your story, then that's good. 
you know yeah. so it's it's i was just so i am and was surrounded by that energy so that's also what's moved me forward so mccann saw i was ready i knew i was ready for something different but the europe job came and then they come we were we were going to we were rebuilding the region and that role was there and we'd hired new leadership in the region and you know at mccann we are hugely uh, you know, the, uh, believers in kind of promoting and moving talent internally and growing talent. And I was one of the people that was considered for that role. And I went through a process just like everybody else would. Mm. And uh, the fact that, you know, I, I had that conversation and I remember thinking, oh, yeah, I am ready for this. Mm. You know, so I would not have known that if I hadn't had a conversation with someone who said to me, I think you're ready for this. Uh, and you should give it a shot. Mm -hmm. And then I went there and I realized that, oh, um, this is very different from anything I've done. It was a stretch unlike anything I'd experienced because here I was not running a client. Now, McCann was my biggest client in the wow. region, you know, mm -hmm. and I wasn't running just one client. I was responsible for running many others. And I was a leader of leaders, mm -hmm. and, you know, people's career paths and people's and, it, uh, 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 and people's growth and our creative, our collective product. Um, creatively and strategically, that's what I was here to kind of like protect and preserve and improve the quality of and, you know, take to the next level. How did you equip yourself to be ready for this role and grow into it? I had a lot of help. I had great coaching, mm -hmm. you know, um, and um, I had great partners. And um, it's really, it's and, and, and self-awareness, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's... Do you have advice for someone who's starting in, in a in a in a C-suite role, the first or chief strategy officer role and, and, and going to, yeah, look after the, the agency rather than the brands. What advice do you have to share about that first period? Don't second guess yourself. You know, I think um, uh, is the first thing I would say because you've done this before in, in a, just in another iteration so in another in, a, in another way. One of the big things is that the playbook isn't any different. You're still here championing good people, good work, create, and you're here to create the conditions where the best minds want to make their best work. So you have to create a space where people actually want to make their best work, want to make their boldest work. So you just have to be good at life to be a good leader is what I would say. You know, just, mm -hmm. just, just, just be switched on in that, in that way. And you feel that that, as a as chief strategy officer and your chief strategy of Europe at this time for McCann World Group, that's your role is to create an environment where people can do their best work. That is the most important part of your job. It's not the only thing you do, obviously, but it is perhaps, in my experience, the most important thing that you do is to kind of create the conditions where people can actually do their best work and 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 accomplish more and achieve more that they that they that they can because of your presence and your influence and and you just being there the fact is that if you weren't there people would how much does your being there help the teams be more mm. and i think that is how you evaluate your contribution and your impact mm. what do you think you've done that's had the biggest impact on that one thing one many what or what what advice do you have for someone who's listening who they're they're maybe in your role or they're just running a business and they want to create 
the best environment for their for their teams to do the best work what advice do you have to to enable them to do that have a very clear idea about what success means and have a very clear idea about what are the values and conditions that will drive that success be and 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 share that that has to be shared so that's the first thing i think the second one is have a strong community invest in building a community that's really really important because you know at the end of the day you're only as strong as your leaders so you have to build a community of leaders and you have to invest in it it's not just a thing that oh yeah we'll get people together once in a while no that's really important and um you Any know strategies for doing yeah that? well you say your three points on investing in investing in a team would be the success shared success shared vision of success is the first thing i think you have to like include people in being able to chart out what that is mm. you know people have to f- believe that they have genuinely like i said being good at life you have to genuinely believe that you've had agency in creating the narrative and the goal mm-hmm. you know people it's hard to expect people to want to conform or believe in something they've had absolutely no agency in creating especially if you're working with bold creative minds i mean i know that firsthand so first thing is to be inclusive and expansive in the in that in that sense and then of course you need trust and community mm-hmm. where you have to be able to keep each other honest yeah and then you have to be completely generous with each other and honest. So it's not a very sophisticated answer I'm afraid, but it is it is the answer that works for me. Mm. So you it's it it comes down to just being a really a being a good leader comes down to being a really good human being. Yeah. I think the most profound and impactful and valuable things are very simple. Yeah. It's easy to complicate things. And often when someone is an expert at what they do, they can explain it in very simple terms, which is what you you're able to do. Um what you, your next role is a global role. Global Chief Strategy Officer of McCann. How does that come about and what are you feeling at this time? Are you excited? Are you nervous? All of the above. <laughs> what were you nervous about? It happened during the pandemic and it completely my whole playbook, my whole everything that I'd learned on how to do my job well was something that I wouldn't have access to that bag of tricks so to speak you know i'm someone who learned to do make an impact by being in the markets working with people on real engagements having shared experiences you know just those memories and creating those experiences and creating the, being part of those victories and mm-hmm. architecting those and having the highs and lows with them and building something together that was all so hard during um the pandemic when this happened so it was like well we're going to do this on teams mm-hmm. and uh that that was something that was uncomfortable for me um and then i realized well it's uncomfortable for everyone mm-hmm. so and once again is this the most uncomfortable thing you've dealt with <laughs> just remember like like hello mm. so we'll figure this out mm. and that i did have that moment where i was like oh my god uh, my entire bag of tricks has been rendered obsolete by this because the only way i know how to do this is to you know i'm a tactile person mm. be in it something um 
and and it wasn't easy but we managed we did really well despite that and this is the time that we met we started yes. talking oh my god yes yeah. i remember having that conversation with you and he's like do you have any opinions on stuff and i'm like I'm a piñata of opinions. <laughs> that was one of our favorite comments of the time. I'm an opinata of opinions. Oh, love it. I don't know. Well, I think I might have read it somewhere or not, or just conjured it up. But whatever. That's that's how I remember introducing myself to you, didn't I? Yeah, that's right. And you were full of them. We you came to in, to our unified creative roundtables and panel discussions. Oh yes. Yeah. And we were talking about you know how do we unify the industry? What are the biggest challenges? most importantly what are the solutions mm. and uh and you've got yeah great opinions and perspectives on how things could be different i think because you've seen and experienced so many things that are that do need to be improved in in the industry yes what what do you think um what are you most passionate at the moment about what needs to change in the, in the industry mm. you know it's such a good question because some of the things still very fundamental things need to we just need to continue to remind ourselves i talk to people and i just think that we just can't need to just remember that it's easy to complicate things we need to go back to the fundamentals let's never forget that different is good mm. because here's the thing in retrospect now i think this is the industry that invented the whole concept of a point of difference you know, we learn that in marketing theory and brand theory. People pay more for a point of difference or mm. brands. You know, differentiation commands a premium and yeah. all of that. And we've also learned that you can't, I mean, this is just, what's true in life is true in advertising. That has been the biggest learning of my life. And I keep telling people that for me, that's the biggest learning. Of course, I've been fortunate enough to, you know, to work my ass off and get an education and do all of that stuff like everybody else. But the biggest learning is that, that what's true in life is true in advertising because here's the thing, you can't make different, do different unless you think different and you are different. So yeah. embrace that. This is stop expecting people to just fit in and disappear because that's not what we do. That's the first thing. And I think the other thing is, I think, what is your point of difference? It's your point of view. Mm. And I think we have to actually create an, an industry where, which celebrates a different point of view, which actually makes it safe and, um, and, and, and lucrative for people with bold and different points of view and sets of references to actually come out there and share them and be them and, 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 and make them real for people and in their lives. And so that's so important. And that's what I mean by creating the industry where the best minds want to do their boldest, best work. That only comes from having really different references and beliefs. Mm, yeah. So those are things that I think we, this industry, we just need to continuously remember that, that, you know, we need to create an industry which celebrates the point of difference. We can't just say that that's something we do for brands, but how are you going to make that if in the industry you only are creating an environment where everyone who just looks like everybody else, thinks like everybody else, talks like everybody else, goes to the same schools, makes the work. Yeah. You know, it doesn't quite happen like that. I don't know. I've had you know, countless hundreds of pictures. I've never been to one where the clients have said, oh, well, please, can you show us some advertising that looks just like everybody else's? <laughs> never happened. <laughs> never happened. <laughs> How many meetings have you been to where people have said, can you show us something that makes us a little uncomfortable? We want something that's a bit bold, a bit uncomfortable. Or sometimes you've lost a pitch and you're like, oh, they really made us uncomfortable with the work. How are you going to make people uncomfortable with the work if... 
you don't have, if you don't challenge your own perceptions and your held beliefs and references. So I think as an industry, we just have to continuously commit to that. That is not just something we should be talking about in panels. That is our oxygen. That is the only way we'll be future proof. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, if I have to choose one thing, that's where I would focus on. Mm. It's like I heard an analogy of, of beehives. So you have a colony of bees, let's say. 80% of them, once they've found a good source of pollen, 80% will keep going to the same patch and going back to the hive. The other 20% will go off in any random direction. And it's those 20% that then find new sources that then allow the, the hive to or the hive or the colony to continue because they find the new sources and bring that back. Yes. Hence that expression of cross-pollination. Mm. Yeah. It's I'm so going to have to use that. <laughs> Good one. Ashley has brilliant analogies. Yeah. I'm blessed with hearing many every day. Um, January 2023, you are appointed Global Chief Strategy Officer of McCann World Group. That's all of the agencies yes. within the World, McCann World Group. What do you think your father thinks about what you've achieved oh we just hung out last week dad and i it was his 80th birthday earlier in may beautiful like i said you know th- things are different now i'm older he's older where, what, was there <laughs> a certain this for 27 years was there a certain <laughs> moment where he you feel like they he recognized that okay you went on your own path and at the time i didn't think it was right but i understand now what this world of advertising is and how successful you've been. Well, yes, he's had a lot of time to learn and educate himself as well. You know, I mean, when, when I think when you, st- he, he was curious about the industry and he's read books on it and he's watched Mad Men like everybody else has. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he now, you know, in India, you still have key numbers in the magazines and he looks at them. And sometimes if he's seen something, um, when he's traveling or whatever, he'll ask me, did you make that? Were you involved in that? So I have to keep reminding him, I said, no, I don't actually, didn't get to actually make that. I might six, seven, eight degrees of separation. Mm. I may have touched it in some obtuse way, but you know, it's really there. And he's, and he said something really interesting to me the other day. He's like, well, that's, that's, that's really, then, then you did, then you should think that's an important contribution. Even if you you haven't directly been involved that still is even seven eight ten degrees of separation from it of course because you need to liken it to the army everything like oh no (laughs) but um he did say something to me about leadership and about contribution that i've never forgotten and he said you know it's like the as you become more and more um senior in your role and you have a more expansive um uh, scope of responsibility um he said to me think of being like salt in the water. And I was like, what is that? He's like, you know, you you don't have to be visible, but you have to be palpable. You mm. can taste it. Mm, so he's wow. like, you know, and I, and I just was like, that's a really good thing for me to remember. He mm. said that to me. He's like, you know, at the end of the day, when you, because that might have been his experience, like, you know, you can't possibly go and do everything in every unit or every regiment or whatever. So he said, he said the good leaders, he's like, it's just salt. They like salt their impact is palpable, Mm. it's felt. You don't have to be visible in the front, doing Mm. it Mm. every single time. Your presence and your impact 
you should be people you can, should be able to taste it. I see. And yeah. I think for me, I've I do keep that in mind, and I do use that as a way to evaluate the impact I'm having or making or helping other leaders in my orbit to make as well. Because you know that's the job. We're all about helping more leaders be even more impactful. That's that's the, the job. I think it's really. I'm glad we got to tell this beautiful story of you know your father and where the relationship is at now, which sounds really lovely. Um, what advice do you have for anybody listening who hasn't maybe repaired relationship with close family, loved ones? Any any messages to to them? I think you know it's just such a take your time um, because. But be honest, do it in your own time is what I would say. I mean, I, I, you can't be in a rush. Uh, you have to take the time to heal if you need to. And everybody's different. But try and make the most of this lifetime because, um, you know, as you um, advance in age, what's the expression? Um, the days may feel long, but the years get shorter. And, um, you know... Mm. It's really important to remember that um, that uh, you don't have a lot of time, um, and so how do you want to use your time? And that's really a very subjective and personal thing. So how long do you want to carry this with you? If you have taken the time to heal, put that healing to good use. Mm. You know. So how do you know if you've let's say you know when I tore my meniscus? in my knee. How do I know that it was okay? I only knew it was okay if I could go to a spin class again. You know, I, when I tore my meniscus, I couldn't go to a spin class for a while. But when it was back on, I only knew it was okay when I could go to a spin class again. I feel it's a bit like that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, don't waste the healing, just apply it and share it. And, um, you know, you'll do yourself a favor too. If that's not a good message to end on, <laughs> I don't know what is, you know. You'll know when you're ready, when you're ready to go to a spin class. Yeah. <laughs> we we like to end these. Is there any, any final words you'd like to yeah, say? final words. Say? We'd like to end with a poem. We've got that coming. I'll do a summary of what I think mm -hmm. the lessons are from your life. Um, a final word. Yeah, um, yeah you know, that I do actually... Uh, I think it's really important to not apologize for being yourself. Mm. You know, to be unapologetic isn't just something about, you know, being sassy and being fierce or being lippy or being whatever. It's it's your job. I think it's the biggest favor and the biggest obligation you will you owe to yourself is to not apologize for being who you are and being yourself and uh, you know, my really that is my life's motto do not dim your light you're not here to do that you know people can go figure out let them get shades let them get sunglasses let them do what they need to do you know your point of view is valid don't dim your light you're here to shine and don't apologize for your light that's what i want to say it's the only thing that matters at the end of the day beautiful thank you lovely way to put it okay so a summary of, of what I think the, you know, the lessons from your life are for people watching is that just that real ability, if you've mastered the art of, of what to do with other people's feedback and what to do with what other people think of you, 
which is, as you said, you know, just say thank you. Okay, that's your perspective. Um, appreciate it. You clearly, you know, you've got it love for me. spark joy. There we go, Marie Conduit. And, um, and I think that's so important and, and not often talked about and maybe undervalued because it's, you know, if you listen to everybody, you'll go in all sorts of directions. You'll go in a different direction every day. So you do have, you do choose who you listen to. And that choice is super important. And a lot of times you've, you've, you've looked inwards and gone, what am I really about? What do I really, really want to do? What ignites that light inside of me? And how can I make that shine brighter? I'm going to go for that. No matter what other people say to me, I'm going to push forward for that. And I'm going to arrange my life and career to allow those things to happen with unwavering focus and there's I think there's massive value in that and you you've got to that role you know you wanted a global role you're now global chief strategy officer of McCann World Group one of the most successful award-winning and effective agencies on the planet which is amazing and I think very inspiring so thanks for for sharing your story thank you so much for having me pleasure now for the final poem So I make this one up as we go along. So you may have seen me scribbling here and there. And I think, I think the one thing that I really take from, from all of this is the LCD. When, when feedback, when you're having feedback or someone's talking, talking about an aspect of you yourself, to take that with love, to see the love in it first, to then apply compassion for yourself and the individual and to then distance yourself if you need to, to, to know what's in your head, you know, and, and, and how you feel as opposed to the projection of something, someone else upon you and upon yourself. I think that's very, very powerful. Here we go. Stories, experiences, and lessons, too many to mention. Seeing that one should never blindly follow the norm as it leaves no space for reinvention. You can move on up with determination and yes can lead to more yes. And know that you can never be too overqualified or to be too overdressed. To move towards a global space, it takes a concerted choice. And to get the right feedback from peers and seniors, don't ever be afraid to raise your own voice. If you find out what success means to you, you will thrive and never be stale. So practice being good at life and let your authentic self prevail. It's beautiful. Thank you. Inspired by yourself. Thank you for joining us today. There we go. And that is how you became Global Chief Strategy Officer of McCann World Group. Thanks for sharing. Thank you.